Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. I want to uh, introduce uh, Dr. Philip O'Brien from the Environmental Protection Agency, who's going to give us a 25-minute presentation. Uh, Philip is a mitigation scientist with EPA and has a research background in atmospheric physics and climate. He's a graduate of DCU and NUI Galway, and his principal area of interest is mitigation of greenhouse gas emissions to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. In previous work, he was responsible for the estimation of greenhouse gas emissions and the removals associated with land use, land use change and forestry, and coordination of the EPA's research uh, to improve inventory estimates. Philip is also acts as secretariat to the National Climate Change Council. Philip, you're very welcome to this morning's webinar. Can you hear us well? Yes, thank you. Uh, so I was asked to, um, <clears throat> to discuss or the topic, or the, the title was Greenhouse Gases, What's the Fuss? Um, I won't get all apocalyptic on this. I'll just very briefly uh, go through the, the main statements from the IPCC, the Intergovernment Panel of Climate Change, and then I'll get into Irish emissions. <clears throat> the, um, after the Paris Agreement, the international community, the governments of the world, if you like, uh, asked the research and expertise to give them an insight into what's the difference between two degrees, which was the agreed target uh, uh, under the Paris Agreement, and the 1.5 degrees, which was, if you like, more an aspiration of the Paris Agreement, said, what's the difference? <clears throat> and uh, so they wrote a special report, a special report on warming 1.5 degrees, and their headline headlines from it is that every bit of warming matters, every year matters, and every choice matters. That means that this is, uh, in order to get, in order to, it's very important to restrict or constrain warming to as the least amount possible. Um, they also asked the international community to um, in, to explore further the research that was available on what in particular warming would happen or would what impacts it might have on the land and on agriculture and, and um, food systems. And so there's a separate report called the Special Report on Climate on Land, and it has um, the findings that we obviously, we live, land is where we live. It's primary to our existence. Land and land use is under growing human pressure because the human population is increasing. We need to feed them, we need to house them, and we need all the other resources that we get from the land uh, for them. And the world's population is also becoming more wealthy as well as well wealthy we're coming out of poverty huge areas of the world are coming out of poverty um, it was a pains to point out that land is part of the solution and this is very much the argument of carbon sequestration uh, going to forests and afforestation new forests but also to the soils and so on but that land cannot do it all there are other technologies required um, for this mitigation and for um, to, to keep us within within two degrees, let alone 1.5 degrees. So, and that final message was very much uh, a point back to the 1.5 degrees report, uh, where uh, the land people felt they were a little bit too optimistic about what land could achieve in terms of afforestation. They felt that the, the level of afforestation required uh, for some of the scenarios under the 1.5 to maintain the temp warming to 1.5 would simply demand too much agricultural land across the world. 
where are we now? Uh, we're about one degree warmer than we were pre-industrial. All around the world, people are beginning to see the consequences of this. Yes, we see the one point in on the thermometers, it's one degree warmer. In real life, it means that uh, agricultural systems in vulnerable areas of the world are already under threat. Um, extreme events are occurring, which are um, impacting on, on people's livelihoods throughout the world. And um, people are migrating and to a certain extent. We're seeing droughts and floods and so on. And people are essentially where they have the resources will actually move out of those areas. And we're beginning to see that. At the current rate of warming, uh, we will reach 1.5 degrees between 2030 and 2052. This has been blown in the media as saying that we have 12 years to turn this thing around, 12 years before we destroy the planet or whatever. That's not the message. A straight line to where we're going, but we do expect at least some global action. Uh, so that's a bit like flattening the curve of COVID I, uh, for the COVID um, situation. Here we're talking about flattening the curve for warming. Um, what's important is past emissions do not commit us to 1.5 degrees. We're not, we haven't broken the system yet. We haven't exceeded the targets yet. Um, but it is highly unlikely, I would say, that we will not overshoot. We will, because we can't shut down all the coal-fired power plants and the gas-fired power plants across the world overnight, and we can't change our cars to EVs overnight, and change our homes overnight. Uh, that period of transition, during that transition, we will continue to emit greenhouse gases, uh, particularly CO2, and uh, that will push us over 1.5 degrees, and it'll be a race and uh, an important effort to actually bring us back down to 1.5 degrees, or even two degrees if we oversee two degrees. As it stands right now, uh, temperature is still going up. The greenhouse gas emissions pathways will be difficult for 1.5, but actually same. It's actually very little difference between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees in terms of the uh, the effort that's involved and the transition involved. The only difference is the time scale. There's about 20 years in the difference. If you want to reach 2 degrees, you have about 20 extra years. 1.5 closes off the time frame much, much quicker. Uh, we need deep cuts in emissions across all sectors, and that does include agriculture. Uh, it'll involve a range of technologies, some of which we haven't even deployed yet. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to uh, be able to give this presentation. Um, it is, as I say, very unusual circumstances. As I say, the technologies, a lot of which um, need to be developed very rapidly over the next few years and, and next decade or so. But the one technology that we do have and we know works is carbon sequestration, particularly to forests. We know we really know that works, and sequestration to soils and uh, also. Uh, to a certain extent, avoiding the emissions from the management of our peatlands across the world. Okay, uh, so these are, if you like, the, these, these curves represent the rate in which we have to reduce our emissions across the, well, I won't call, talk about black carbon, so across carbon dioxide, which is a big one. It's big because it's the most important. And then we have methane emissions and nitrous oxide emissions, and they're very important to Ireland because these are the areas which are uh, most closely associated with agricultural practices in Ireland. 
the blue curves, if you like, are the most likely trajectories to get us to 1.5 degrees. And there's a whole range of different scenarios bundled in there, but all of them go below zero. The zero line is, is there. I can move the mouse. Uh, well, there it is, yeah. So the zero line is there. When it goes below zero, and all of them do, it means that we're taking CO2 out of the atmosphere from that point in time. And the average is around 2050. So this is why you see it at level and international levels, we're talking about net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. They're really speaking to this curve, which is that we very rapidly reduce our use of fossil fuels or decarbonize them in some way with carbon capture and so on. And we're using a lot of negative emissions technologies, including afforestation and soils, to bring carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, putting it and putting it safely away somewhere else. And depending on how quickly we decarbonize our, our fossil systems, see these gray points, for example, if we delay by uh, 10, 15 years, we need huge amounts of negative emissions at a scale which is effectively for afforestation areas beyond the size of India. Um, so very, very challenging if we're not on the right pathway. If we don't now, we are storing up a lot of problems for our children and grandchildren. What's interesting is the methane emissions do not go to zero. They do not have to go to zero to keep us to 1.5 degrees. And uh, the nitrous oxide emissions, uh, for the most part, do not go to zero either. They do reduce quite significantly. And in some scenarios, the nitrous oxide emissions, quite ironically, uh, increase quite a lot. But those scenarios are really scenarios that we do not want to get to, because that's where you're using a lot of fertilizer to grow a lot of biomass and a lot of trees and a lot of uh, energy crops and so on to throw them into uh, BEX, what's called biomass combined with carbon capture and storage. And that will have a huge impact on the land available for non-energy crops, food crops. So we do not want to be in the situation where we need to use the on those pathways, which involve huge resources going towards um, those technology-driven, energy-driven solutions to get carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. But the point I really want to put, what's really interesting is they don't go to zero and methane particularly reduces of the order of about 50%. <clears throat> this is just to, to reiterate where we are at the moment. Carbon dioxide emissions, uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere increasing steadily. The, the second curve underneath it with the gray areas, that means that Year on year, it's increasing and increasing. So it's, it's accelerating. With methane, we saw a period in the uh, early 90s where essentially the amount of methane in the atmosphere stabilized. And that was because we actually started to stabilize the rate at which we were putting methane into the atmosphere. And also there was some um, <clears throat> additional work. And this is, this is mainly related to fossil fuels, where we started switching away from coal, which actually does produce a lot of methane in its extraction. And we started fixing some of the poor um, uh, natural gas distribution systems around the world, you know, fixing the pipes and so on. And that reduced the amount of methane that was going uh, into the atmosphere, or at least stabilized the rate at which it was being emitted. And because of that, it actually stabilized in the atmosphere. The concentration reached a plateau. But since then, the rate has gone back up again, and the, the concentration of methane in the atmosphere has increased over the last decade or more. <clears throat> uh, 
it's a little bit uncertain as to why. Uh, a lot of people point to fracking and ex uh, ex ex fracking for natural gas and fracking for oil as well. But also there has been an increase globally in the number of animals, humans in the world. Nitrous oxide, same as carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide are both long-lived gases. You put them into the atmosphere, they stay there. Methane is a short-lived gas. You put it in after about, well, a half-life of 10 years, so after about 20 or 30 years, uh, that molecule has gone. But if you still have the animals, they're replenishing the amount of methane in the atmosphere. So it reaches a steady state as opposed to what happens with carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide, which, where they keep on increasing. <coughs> this is a very technical diagram. Um, all I really want to show from it is the, the extra warming that we're putting into the atmosphere. Technically, it's called radiative forcing. <coughs> Radiative forcing since the beginning of the, uh, the 18th century, so 1750 or so on. Um, carbon dioxide is the main driver of warming and climate change, but methane, the extra methane that we put into the atmosphere and we are maintaining in the atmosphere, and the extra nitrous oxide that we are putting into the atmosphere and stays in the atmosphere, contribute about 30% of the warming that we have seen. So if you like, when this line is on the positive side of zero, that's adding to the warming. I mean, see that there's methane, there's nitrous oxide, and they're about 30% of the total influence that humans are having on the atmosphere and causing warming. <clears throat> uh, this is all from the IPCC reports. If we concentrate just for CO2, the carbon that we put in the atmosphere and where it's come from and the historical um, timelines on it. In the beginning of the 1850s, around the 1850s, the dominant force for putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was land use. It was land change. It was huge areas of deforestation and Ireland was not immune to this one. We deforested our, almost our entire country before the beginning of the 19, uh, 1900s. But gradually you see the gray line, which is fossil fuels, building and building and building. And beyond 2050, fossil fuels took over the lead position and have skyrocketed since then. So at this stage, fossil fuels are by far the largest contribution of CO2, extra CO2 to the atmosphere. Land use change is still contributing, but is essentially stabilized. And there is a program, a global program at least, to reduce the, the land use change element to zero. Um, but natural processes actually take it back out again. We have the ocean sink, not a good thing, but a lot of CO2 is going into the ocean, causing ocean acidification and all kinds of problems to marine life. The land sink, this is often referred to as the CO2 fertilizer effect. Uh, because there's more CO2 in the atmosphere, plants use it up more and it has been a very significant sink of the extra CO2 that we put in. But the rest of it is staying in the atmosphere and it stays in there as CO2. So about 55% uh, of the la of, um, of CO2 is taken out by the ocean and the land, sorry, 45% CO, uh, is taken out and the rest stays in the atmosphere. What's interesting is the Currently, and it's only coincidentally, currently the land sink is approximately the same as the land use sources. So land of itself globally is more or less at balance, but everything else in the system is completely disrupted.
this is just focusing in on the period, the 10 year period from 2009 to uh, 2018, uh, as I say, dominated by CO, fossil fuels, 30, 86% of it, land use 10%, put, putting CO2 in the atmosphere. The sinks are the oceans at 23%, the biomass at approximately 30%, and the rest of it stays in the atmosphere. And there's no mechanism to get it out of the atmosphere other than those two existing ones. What we're hoping is that we will develop technologies such as carbon capture storage and direct air capture to begin to take these out of the atmosphere. But that, if you know, you're competing against, you're trying to get up to a scale that is equivalent to the world's biosystems and the world's oceans. This is a very, very challenging proposition. That's CO2. Now on to methane. <clears throat> um, methane has natural and uh, anthropogenic human sources. The largest human source is agriculture and waste. Waste is about 10% of, of the agricultural waste proposition. And, but not to neglect that there is very significant, about a third of the sources of methane in the atmosphere due to people is actually coming from fossil fuel production and extraction. If we tackle the CO2 and we stop extracting uh, fossil fuels and we stop distributing and so on, we tackle a very large proportion of this fossil fuel component of the uh, current emissions into the atmosphere. Also in very recent work, um, what people previously thought was of as uh, geological natural sources have actually turned out to be also related to fossil fuel extraction. You're just coming up to the cracks elsewhere and so on. So the component of, um, of the nature of human component of methane emissions, a larger proportion of that is coming from fossil fuels these days, but it still doesn't rival what's coming from the agriculture side. And the agriculture side is essentially dominated by the livestock. Uh, livestock first, rice production second, and then a few other sources uh, related. But to counter that, there's a very large natural sink in the atmosphere. The atmosphere looks at methane and it breaks it down. It breaks it down over a half-life of 10 years, so as I say, over maybe 30 years, it gets it down to back down to kind of background levels and so on. So there is year on year a very large sink from the atmosphere itself. Some of it actually goes to soils, but it's very minor. But at current rates of emissions and at current rates of production, it is increasing year on year, and therefore the amount of methane in the atmosphere is increasing. <clears throat> okay, <clears throat> now that's the global perspective. Let's have a look at um, where we are nationally. So uh, each year we submit our emissions, the EPA produces and submits the emissions to the UN in mid-April. Hopefully we, we will be able to stick to that timetable. Uh, but we're not in mid-April yet, so the numbers that I will show here today are provisional. Uh, please do not cite them. They will become formal and official uh, by mid-April, hopefully. Um, but there, there is still time that they might change slightly. That's why uh, I, I urge you not to cite them at this time. <clears throat> and uh, the projections are not available yet. Uh, they should also be available towards the, the middle of the, the month or maybe the end of the month, but it actually depends on uh, new government because they have to be agreed by government. <clears throat> and uh, therefore, we, I, I can't show you what we feel um, might happen due to the measures implemented under the action plan. Uh, we may have an opportunity that I might come back 
uh, at a later date to discuss um, to the project to the projections. But today I'll just concentrate on uh, the emissions. <clears throat> Across sectors, there's very little good news for 2018. Uh, there was a large decrease in the emissions due to electricity generation. This was mainly due to it hasn't really kicked up yet. It hasn't started back up yet either. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, relative to 1990, we're 9% uh, higher than 1990. Uh, we're 13% lower than we were uh, lower than we were in 2005, and we are. We fell about, you know, 0.2% in 2017 relative to 20, or 2018 relative to 2017. Um, yeah, none of this is very good because we're way off our targets. Um, but electricity is doing its uh, accidentally almost is doing its job, but it's not quite accidental because actually, uh, renewables are playing an important role here. Even though we lost money point in in 2018. Um, renewables took up the slack, as did um, the, the natural gas. We have enough capacity um, to do without Money Point, and indeed to do without the peat fire stations as well. Our system has not collapsed, even though they have also closed in recent times. Compared to 1990, uh, agriculture is slightly less uh, proportionate than it was. It was 37%, now it's 34%. Not much of a difference. The big difference actually in this chart is what happened in transport. Transport emissions have, uh, have ne are nearly two and a half times what they were in uh, 1990. Um, and transport has overtaken electricity generation as the second major uh, source of emissions. If we look at carbon dioxide uh, by sector, um, energy, energy sources, 20 26%, they used to be higher. Uh, transport, 34%. Residential, 15%. Agriculture, 3%. It doesn't really feature that strongly in this. The amount of fossil fuel used in agriculture uh, is not, it's not huge compared to where, um, <clears throat> where we use fossil fuels in the rest of our lives and the rest of our economy. <clears throat> However, what has been asked of us in terms of reducing our emissions out to 2050 and so on is <clears throat> that transport, everybody uses transport and so does every business and so does every uh, sector. So transport emissions, we will have to switch to EVs, for example, uh, for personal transport and maybe biofuels or hybrid systems or different types of gases and so on for freight systems. On the residential side, uh, we will have to switch out of um, oil, fire, central heating, coal, peat, uh, etc., uh, and switch over to heat pumps, for example, or uh, in certain circumstances, we may uh, be able to switch to uh, biogas, biomethane, and so on. And similarly, manufacturing combustion, again, that is uh, uh, processing a lot of the materials that are coming out of the primary production that's happening in agriculture. So even though not directly related to agriculture, indirectly agriculture is, and the right of rural economy <clears throat> is impacting on these emissions and we're going to be asked to do a lot on it. As an aside, <clears throat> because I thought this was quite interesting myself, a very recent paper 
um, <clears throat> produced on the, uh, published on uh, the last week in March in Nature Sustainability, did a, a, a global comparison of energy systems <clears throat> and asking the question whether or not um, it was uh, advisable or uh, suitable to buy an EV or install a heat pump system. So switching, electrifying your transport or electrifying your um, uh, your heating, your home heating. <clears throat> and this green area, which is uh, quite substantial. So on the, on, on the x-axis, we have the energy demand for an EV uh, or, or heat pump. And on the y-axis, we have the greenhouse gas emissions associated with the electricity that is delivering the energy. The global mean is these white arrows. So this is a typical EV, and these are typically globally where we are on uh, the global electricity generation. Ireland is the red line. So to buy an EV in Ireland, a, typ a typical EV, you will be almost certainly reduced greenhouse gas emissions, including, there's a life cycle analysis element to this, including the emissions associated with the production of that vehicle. And also bearing in mind that, so we're well on track and there's no particular concern. We appear to have lost you there momentarily, uh, Philip. If you could re just repeat that last uh, short point you were making about the, the EV uh, differential there. So, uh, so the ESB have, where my mouse is below 250 here, uh, by 2030. So at this stage, there is no reason to be worried when you switch from uh, a fossil fuel vehicle over to electric vehicle. Now you may have other concerns, but in greenhouse gas emissions, it will almost certainly reduce greenhouse gas emissions in Ireland. Similarly, although it's a slightly, slightly different story, uh, similarly, if you switch to a heat pump, you will be almost certainly reducing the uh, amount of emissions associated with your heating. Now, uh, these, these are very, you'd have, to, you'd have to actually talk to heat pump people to understand exactly what these numbers mean on the bottom, but it's basically about the amount of energy you put in to get the heat back out again. Uh, but in both cases, switching to electrifying your transport and electrifying your heating is a good proposition in Ireland because our grid is a low emissions grid. Other parts of the world, you can see those reds and so on. There are parts of the world where that is not the case. Anyway, that was an aside. Let's get back to agriculture. <clears throat> um, where do our methane emissions come from in Ireland? 93% effectively come from agriculture. And it's the animals. It's the animals themselves, and it's the uh, management of the manure. 93% effectively of N2O also comes from agriculture, and that is, uh, it's a bit more complicated. It is the management of manure. It is the animals uh, out on the field, um, dung and urine, and, uh, emissions associated with that, and it is the use of artificial fertilizer. <clears throat> and artificial fertilizer is the largest component of that. But uh, it's only about 50%, the rest of it is, is uh, the animals and manure management. Uh, as Jerry alluded to earlier, the MAC curve for mitigations of uh, greenhouse gas emissions has a lot to say about what we can do about N2O. And those are very important measures. It's a long-lived gas. 
and as much as we can, we should be implementing those. <clears throat> we can't really talk about how Ireland is addressing our greenhouse gas emissions without looking at the EU position, because Ireland acts within the European bubble, as they call it. Uh, Ireland's response is framed by what the collective response of Europe is. And it exists, uh, the European response has three pillars to it. The emissions trading scheme, that's geared at large industries. Uh, across Europe, it's responsible for about 45% um, of the emissions in Europe. In Ireland, it's a little bit different. We're, on, we're the lowest, probably one of the lowest countries where only about 26% of our emissions are associated with, are entailed or covered under the emissions trading system. And it only accounts for about 100 facilities, 100 uh, companies or factories and power stations and so on. So it's very, it's very business orientated. It's also very industry orientated. Uh, the way it works is that a certain amount of um, allowances are, are given out every year and businesses have to bid for them. And that controls the price. If, uh, so if you have a business which is, needs a lot of allowances, so it's going to emit a lot of, of CO2, it has to pay to do that. And there are others out there who uh, uh, don't produce a lot of emissions uh, for the same service, so they can actually lower their price to, to consumers and so on. So the emissions trading system is actually very effective. It has reached its targets. It's, it's, it's actually overreached on its targets right across Europe. So it works. It's very controversial because it's seen as a license to pollute, but it works. And gradually, as the cap on the number of emissions or allowances reduce, the emissions across Europe are reducing in, that, in the emissions trading sector. The effort sharing decision is where we get our national targets from, and they cover agriculture, transport, small commercial enterprises, residential heat, uh, heat uh, and waste, etc. Each member state has its own target. For Ireland, that target was 20% uh, by 2020 relative five we will not reach it we are not within uh we're, we're nowhere near it i was going to say we're not within the nasa's or we're, we're nowhere near it 2030 our target is 30 percent uh, well again relative to 2005 um the climate action plan is uh, is a plan to achieve that 30 percent emissions reduction we don't we haven't fully worked through as i said earlier the projections aren't available yet on that but the expectation is that the plan itself will, on paper, as Jerry was saying, as an Excel sheet, looks like we might make it. Um, there's two caveats to that. One, our ambition might push up because of um, the need um, and the new policies at the European level to reduce emissions further than uh, 30%, perhaps. And uh, also, we need to implement it. I mean, it, it really does need to be implemented. Um, and there are a lot of ambitious targets within there, let's say for, for transport, you know, nearly a million EVs, that's very challenging. Then there's the Lula CF decision, uh, which says that from 2021 onwards, a limited amount of the sink or the removals or the carbon sequestration achieved within land use can be used to meet our decision after 2020. So 2021 onwards, it is the energy changing regulation. Um, I don't know why. That's just the way things are uh, worded in Europe. But um, in the next decade, we can use an element of what we have as a sink within the, the land use, land use change sector uh, to meet our targets. But it's not, uh, it's not uh, open access. There is a limit to what we can use. 
and for the most part we will have already achieved it in what we have done for afforestation uh, in previous years, uh, in, in the years coming up to now. Uh, but we still need to do a little bit more and there's, uh, I think in the, in the climate action plan there's, there's ambition to re-wet peatlands and so on. Um, so these are how they break down. The emissions trading is the blue line, the orange line is the effort sharing decision. The red line is approximately our targets that we had under the emissions trading system, um, or sorry, under the effort sharing decision. Uh, the emissions trading are down about 32%. As I said, it has worked. Um, it's just not a large proportion of our national emissions. It hasn't worked. Our effort sharing decision, we have not met our targets. We started off underneath, and that was because of the recession, not policy have a recession and since 26, 2017 we've been above our targets and we've been accumulating more and more since then so we're not going to reach our target and I don't know what COVID is going to do to our emissions but it's not going to decrease them by the best part of 20 percent. This is just uh, to show you where the emissions are coming from it's energy and CO2 emissions they, the uh, effort sharing effort, sorry, the emissions trading scheme, the emissions are coming from the energy industry, industrial processes, manufacturing processes, some of which are agricultural. I mean, it's the milk drying and so on. 26% um, of our uh, emissions, total emissions, very well captured and reducing, the emissions are reducing from those sectors. <clears throat> when it comes to the effort sharing decision, the largest component is coming from agriculture. 46%. Transport is 27% or thereabouts. Then residential, 14%. All these areas are actually very important to the rural community and agriculture is obviously a sector unto itself. Where has agriculture been going? Again, this is not a great story when it comes to the emissions. There are reasons behind why we are increasing our emissions, but we are increasing our emissions. I've grayed out the area, you can still see it. I've grayed out the area previous to 2005. 2005 is the reference year now for our targets going out to 2030. Um, yes, we're, we're only a little bit above where we were in 1990, uh, and we had reached levels which are much higher in, in 1998. Um, but it's 2005 is what's the base year. We fell about 10% during the recession uh, from that high, from the 2005 value. But now we're back up to 104%. Uh, the trend is upwards and it has been driven, if we break it down, it's been driven by what's happening in the dairy side. This is not a surprise, uh, but we can specify, we can say it. the expansion of the dairy side has caused our emissions within uh, agriculture and the methane emissions to expand very significantly. A counterbalance to that is that the non-dairy, effectively the beef side, have reduced about 6% since then, well, 5 to 6%. And the sheep side um, have reduced uh, the best part of 20% since then. Um, and both of those are, are acting as a counterbalance. And so the net emissions increase on the methane side is only about 6%. But that's an increase. And it's an increase in methane, uh, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. When it comes to nitrous oxide emissions, uh, it's a very similar story and driven by the same uh, things, by the same uh, drivers. 
same reasons. Again, 2005 is our reference year. Uh, we're up 6% effectively on that. We had reached, again, better than 10% emissions, less emissions uh, during the, the depths of the depression. Um, again, the depression caused those emissions uh, reductions, but it wasn't a policy to cause it, and we came out of it with a policy which drove emissions back upwards. So economic growth and growth of the sector has not decoupled from emissions. They are very tightly coupled together. And the breakdown is, I won't go into this because it's actually far too complicated. You can, you, I think the slides will be made available and you can delve into this yourself. But effectively, um, where we see the greatest emissions uh, increase has been in the use of inorganic fertilizer. So that's the, the fertilizers that you, you know, now we've appeared to have lost Philip. Sorry, Philip, we just lost you there for a moment. Um, uh, we're getting close to the end of our. Have we many slides to go, Philip? Uh, I'll I'll be able to whiz through the rest of them. I think. Um, okay, great. Um, okay, so but anyway, uh, inorganic fertilizer use. Again, going back to the MAC curve and the options that are available to us, there are options available in inorganic fertilizer, we could have a big impact on that emissions, on those emissions if we implement the measures. The number of animals, that's what's driving the other increases in dung and urine, more animals, more dung, and inorganic fertilizer, again, more animals, more manure. Now, the other aspect of, um, of agriculture is that it's land use. It is the basis of um, our land use. Uh, you need the land to have agriculture. <clears throat> Um, as the emissions, there are emissions associated with the way we use our lands in Ireland. Um, this is a breakdown. The blue, the, the deep blue line is the net result. So we are a net source of emissions of CO2 to the atmosphere of the order of 4 million tonnes. It goes up and down one year to the next. That's, that's uh, <clears throat> approximately 4 million tonnes each year. It has declined a little bit over time. Um, What's underneath that? We have a fairly significant sink on our forestation. Not surprising. We also have a fairly significant sink uh, of harvested wood products. We are using our wood, putting into products which actually last a long time, buildings, furniture, and so on. Those are our sinks. Our sources are the drainage of peatland and the drainage of uh, organic soils, heavy soils. That results in a loss of carbon to the atmosphere, and that is what's dominating our uh, the source um, of um, CO2 to the atmosphere from land use. The peatlands themselves are actually the blue color, that's peat extraction. So that's the one that gets most attention, if you like. Uh, it's the big, the big extraction from Bordemona, but also people using and extracting peat for, for, for burning at home. The grassland is actually much larger, but it's based on about 300,000 hectares, about a tenth of the land of, of the agricultural land in Ireland is, uh, if you like, drained organic soils, and they are losing carbon. The good news, I suppose, to a certain extent, we feel that this is probably an overestimate, but we don't have enough field information and detailed information about management to do a better estimate. We need that information, and we need cooperation of the landowners and the farmers to get that information. As we report this to the EU, and what does it mean to our 2030 targets, it's a very different thing because we're working under different rules. It's not about what's going to the atmosphere, it's what it is like relative to 2005. And relative to 2005, we're actually in a fairly good position in that we have a sink. 
these are just emissions up to date, we don't get to use these uh, in 21 to 2030 to reach our targets in 2030. All this is, this is hypothetical. We do not account for what's happening in land use at the moment. We will be in the next decade, but the next decade is a different decade and how we use our land will be different. But as it stands and what we think will happen is that we will still maintain a net sink and that's, that's why we can use access to the LULUCF decision. Philip, could I ask you to, to move towards your concluding slide now, because I'd like to leave a bit of space for a few questions that we have received um, through the, the, the system there, if you don't mind. Thanks, Philip. Yeah, no problem. Um, very quickly then, uh, we are efficient at producing milk, but the efficiency has not on the fact that we are increasing our emissions. We are efficient at producing beef, and but again, the emissions have, uh, well, emissions are about the same as they were, even though we are more efficient at producing. Um, I won't go into national policy positions then. Uh, suffice to say, it is going to change and it's going to be towards more towards this net CO2 emissions, net all greenhouse gas emissions. So we will have to offset anything we are emitting, we will have to offset. So if we have a large source in agriculture, we will have to deploy carbon sequestration in a major way and also other technologies such as carbon capture and storage and so on in order to balance down to zero. Um, and I won't go away, this is just some food for thought there. Uh, in conclusion then, <clears throat> Ireland is not on track to meet its 2020 targets. We might be on track to a 2030, but we have to implement what's in the action plan. Neutrality's long-term goal is extremely challenging. Sustainable land management would be vital because we will still need the food and all the other resources that are going to come from the land. And there will be more demands made off the land because we will also feed an energy industry. Uh, but we need more detailed activity data to demonstrate the impact of good practice. So if there is carbon sequestration going on on the grasslands and the hedgerows and the forests, we need the activity data, which is the management data, to demonstrate it. And all the available cost-effective mitigation measures need to be implemented in order for us to achieve our targets. And that's it. Thank you very much, Philip. That's a really comprehensive presentation and uh, lots and lots of uh, questions coming through. Uh, just before we get to the questions, if people have questions, you can use your Q&A uh, tab at the bottom of, of your screen or the top of your screen. Um, also, um, there's a lot of questions coming through uh, that are probably more relevant to subsequent uh, webinars that will be coming up over the next number of weeks. And I encourage you to, to take a look at the other webinars that are coming up over the next number of weeks. We're, we're running webinars through to, or we've advertised webinars through to the end of April, but there will be more coming on stream in May and also in June. Uh, Philip, we have a question, a number of questions relation to anaerobic digestion and the role that it could play in reducing uh, the methane emissions uh, from, from Ireland. Have you any comments on that? So, <clears throat> yes, I mean, uh, a, lot of, a lot of the emissions, um, well, a proportion of the emissions um, from uh, the livestock side and from the agricultural side uh, do relate to manure management. And if we are... Uh, first of all, if, we, if we're diverting that manure over to uh, anaerobic digestion, we will actually be capturing quite a lot of the methane and using it to other purposes. So it'll feed into the energy side and that'll help the residential side for the most part, but also some of the industry to reduce its emissions because it's using 
So that's the relationship, the very tight relationship between um, energy and that's going to emerge between energy and, and ag and land. Um, secondly, um, there is also the may well be the options to um, to divert some of the grass that we're using uh, or growing to uh, anaerobic digestion as well. And that's a whole new economic outlet for, for uh, farmers now. It hasn't started yet, but the, the, the numbers look reasonable on that. And I know that uh, Gas Network Ireland is very interested in developing that or at least exploring it further because Gas Network Ireland is a huge, the Gas Network in Ireland is a huge investment in an infrastructure. And at the moment it's a fossil fuel infrastructure. If, to what extent can we move that into a decarbonized or a, a renewable infrastructure? Um, that'll help not only the industry itself, Gas Network Ireland, but also the people who are using it. Because then they don't have to make the big investment to electrify their heating or to electrify their industrial processes. They can still maintain with gas technologies, but that gas that's been delivered is a decarbonized gas. There was a point you made, uh, Philip, there, and you kind of made it quite quickly about the emissions being the same in, in the, the beef sector. However, there's been huge efficiency gains made in, in that particular sector. And I think that story isn't always told. I mean, likewise with the dairy sector, there has been huge efficiency gains in terms of uh, the, the, the emissions per unit of product. Um, but of course, the question still comes back. I mean, are we looking at a reduction in, in herd size? Um, I mean, this is the question that is always posed in these sorts of uh, debates. It's and it's a very difficult question to to get a definitive kind of point of view on. I mean, uh, the dairy side has expanded enormously. Uh, in certain areas, it may be that the dairy side is also reaching the constraints for other environmental uh, other environmental constraints, such as uh, on the ammonia side, as, as Jerry mentioned, but also uh, the water and the nitrate side. Um, uh, so, to the extent to which we have intensified. Uh, our use of land and the uh, associated pollution and also greenhouse gases associated with it, uh, to ramp up production. Um, those, there, there are limits to that. And in certain parts of the country, in certain So I think uh, we may be coming up to those constraints about animal numbers, um, yeah, sorry, you got me up there. Uh, animal uh, to animal numbers uh, more on the nitrogen uh, side than on the uh, methane side. Uh, we are very efficient on methane production. That's fine. We're 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 one of the more efficient on beef production, and that's also good. We have to maintain that position in order for it to be a credible environmental message to people. And if people come and looking to Ireland and say, well, what are your greenhouse gas emissions? Or what are you doing to your water? Or what are you doing to the air? And we say, well, we're very efficient. No, it's about what you're doing. People are looking for real integrity as regards uh, what's happening uh, uh, to the products that they are consuming. So maybe the market response as well to uh, how we um, produce our food will become much more important. Um, and will, it, will it mean a reduction in the animals? This is where the other enterprise options, you know, if you, if you are growing grass for anaerobic digestion 
and that's giving you a better return than having a few beef animals out on the same field. Mm-hmm. You'll go with growing grass. You're still doing the same thing, except you don't have the animals. You do, you're growing the grass. That might be an option, not your entire farm, but part of your farm, part of what you're growing goes to a different uh, buyer, essentially. Uh, Philip, you mentioned about collecting data on, on land use. Uh, what are the plans there, or uh, how, how is that plan to be achieved? Um, well, a lot of this will fall on the responsibility of the department itself. Obviously, the research and the data people and the analysis will come from uh, people such as Chagas and others. But the actual collection of the data, um, I think we will see a lot more of the reform of the CAP common agricultural policy, looking towards what's called uh, output-based um, monitoring and auditing. So basically that, that information will be coming through as a requirement of your payments, essentially. Maybe not your basic payments, but for when you're involved in schemes and so on. Um, I just want to take this opportunity to, to thank Philip uh, for taking the time to join us here today. Um, Philip, uh, it's Philip's presentation. It will be available after today's uh, webinar. Uh, and also we have made a recording of today's webinar, which will be circulated. Um, I also want to draw your attention to a service that Chagas uh, is launching. Uh, it's called the, Ch- the Chagas Connected Digital uh, Program, and it's available at chagas.ie forward slash connected. And if you click on join today, you just fill out your, your details and uh, we will be uh, issuing a monthly a newsletter uh, which will be available uh, giving updates on latest developments in Chagas and publications and so on and so forth coming through from Chagas. So please do take a look at that. Uh, with that, I want to again thank our partners, uh, National Rural Network, Dairy Sustainability Ireland, um, and also Food Drink Ireland as well for their partnership on this project. And uh, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Please do look up uh, uh, the other webinars that are coming up over the next number of weeks. And we'll be, as I said, posting further uh, updates of of webinars taking place during May and June. Uh, With that, uh, thanks all from from Chagask. And we'll talk to you again uh, next week. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.